0: Former Navy Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt took a stand to defend religious freedom by daring to pray publicly, in Jesus' name. Now he helps you by reporting the news, discerning the spirits, and praying the scriptures. Would you pray with us? Here's Dr. Chaps.
1: God bless you, in Jesus' name. My name is Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt, Dr. Chaps, and you're watching PIJN News. On today's show, we have a live interview at the NRB convention with Bill Federer, who is perhaps America's premier Christian historian, and he's written a new book. The title is, I'm going to read it this way, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. It is very colorful. It's got some vignettes about the pilgrims. Welcome, Bill Federer, to the program.
2: Well, Dr. Chaps, great to be with you.
1: So, Bill, I just love the way that you approach history because you put the politics, you put the events, and you personalize each story. Uh, th- tell us why you wrote this book.
2: Well, there's a tactic called deconstruction, uh, where it's a communist tactic, where you separate a people from their past, get them into a neutral where they do not remember where they came from, and then you can brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. It's a sales technique. So if I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I would do is say negative things about the toothpaste you are currently using. You're still using that old stuff, don't you know it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I have you into a neutral, you're sort of open-minded, what are all the toothpastes out there nowadays, and then I can give you my pitch for this brand new tartar control breath freshener stuff. So what they do is they go into the classrooms and they tell the students negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians, they sold people into slavery, and ooh, the students are repulsed by them. Now you got the kids into a neutral, they're sort of open-minded, what are all the belief systems out there nowadays. Then you can give them your pitch for socialism or LGBT or Islam. So a car goes from drive, neutral, reverse, and Europe went through this. Europe went from a Judeo-Christian past, right, Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, Jewish neighborhoods, and then Europe went into a secular neutral with the French Revolution. And Rose Pierre, Napoleon, spreading all this French secularism and free sex and LGBT, gay, anything goes. And now it's turning into an Islamic Europe, with Mohammed being the number one name for newborns in London, Milan, Brussels, Germany. And so we see there's a trend to history, and it's important for us to rediscover our roots. And so that's what I'm doing with this book, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century. Why did they come over in the first place? Well, Europe, uh, Western Europe was Catholic, and then the Muslims invaded. That's right, the same thing we're facing today. So Muslims, after Muhammad's death, conquered Egypt, which used to be completely Christian, evangelized by Mark, that wrote the Gospel. Then the Muslims conquered Syria, which used to be completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. Then the Muslims conquered North Africa. There used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa. They were all conquered by the Muslims. Christians had embraced something called Pietism in the fourth and fifth century. It was this thought that if you really become a Christian, you should give away all your money and live in a cave, or join a monastery, or build a platform in the desert and bake in the sun thinking you're denying your flesh and getting holier. But it was all this me-focused salvation that abandoned responsibility, and as a result, Islam just swept through North Africa. Then in the year 711, they invaded Spain. They're on horseback with stirrups and scimitar swords, those curved swords. The Europeans are on foot with heavy metal swords. In 10 years, the Muslims conquer all of Spain. And uh, they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 AD, just 100 years after the death of Mohammed in 632 AD. So it's a military campaign. Then they come around and conquer what is today Turkey. Uh, all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were conquered. And when that happens, uh, Columbus sets sail looking for a sea route because uh, the land routes were cut off by the Muslims. Well, then they invade further into Europe and capture Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, Wallachia, Moldova, all these countries. And finally, they're at the gates of Vienna. And so uh, the Reformation starts in 1517 with Martin Luther. In 1529, 100,000 Muslims are surrounding Vienna. And Martin Luther says the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. If the Turk's god, the devil, is not beaten first, there is reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. Because the fight against the Turks must begin with repentance. We must reform our lives, or we shall fight in vain. So it's this idea that Martin Luther had that went back to the book of Deuteronomy. The idea that if you hearken to the voice of the Lord, your nation will be blessed. You'll be the head, not the tail. But if you do not hearken to the voice of the Lord. The stranger will come in amongst you and rise up above you, and he will be the head, and you will be the tail, and you will be in debt to him. And so we see that when God allows uh, illegal immigrants to come in and rise up above, that's a sign of judgment. How did God judge Israel? Well, he'd let the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Edomites and the Moabites all come in and oppress them. What, was the, what did they do when they came in? They disarmed them. Right, And so the, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to get their farm implements sharpened because they were not allowed to have a blacksmith. And so uh, when Jonathan and David were there, they were the only two that actually had swords. No one else. And so when a people are being disarmed, right, giving up their weapons, it is a sign you are under judgment as a nation. Um, and when you're being invaded and the ones coming in get favorable status. Anyway, this was Martin Luther's uh, attitude. Uh, so the Holy Roman Emperor, is Charles V of
1: Spain? Hang on, I got—I got to ask. Make sure you keep uh, the timeline in place. What year is—is is, uh, Charles of Spain? Right. So
2: quickly, uh, Mar- uh, Muhammad dies in 632 A.D. All right. 732 A.D. They're outside of Paris. The Muslims. Uh, the uh, Turks convert to Islam and start invading Turkey in 1071. Uh, they conquer Constantinople in 1453 and now they're at the gates of Vienna in 1529. Wow. Right around the time of Martin Luther. Right, so 12 years after Martin Luther starts the Reformation, there's hundred thousand Muslims surrounding Vienna. And the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain, is faced with a double dilemma. He's Catholic. From his point of view, he has two problems. One is the Muslim invasion and the second is this Reformation. And so Charles V does something unprecedented. He makes a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And this is the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. And there's a little Latin phrase in the treaty, cuios regio ius religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. In other words, look, King, you can believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against these Muslims who are invading Europe because they want to kill us all. And so it starts this domino effect in the next century where different kings believe different things.
1: We're going to take a short break right there. So uh, Bill has brought us up to the point where the Muslim hordes are invading Vienna, invading Europe, but the Protestants and Catholics unify together. What happens next, and how does this result in the pilgrims coming to America? More with Bill Federer after this.
0: Giving you a megaphone in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chaps will be right back
3: Many call President Donald Trump's election a miraculous win. But was his election as President of the United States an actual answer to prayer? What was the spiritual dimension, if any? In his new book, God and Donald Trump, author Stephen E. Strang explores President Trump's miraculous victory and what it means for the future of our republic. This is the story behind a divine plan, a grassroots voter uprising, and a miraculous victory no one expected a first-person account of one of the most contentious elections in American history. It offers a penetrating look at the factors that shaped Donald Trump's character and worldview, how openness to spiritual leaders helped build his commitment to religious liberty, and how he captured the largest evangelical vote in American history to win the Electoral College. The Honorable Michelle Bachmann, Everyone is curious about the topic of God and Donald Trump. I'm confident you'll be pleased by what you read. Todd Starnes, Fox News Channel, says, God and Donald Trump may very well be one of the most important books about the Trump presidency. Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor, First Baptist Church, Dallas, said, God and Donald Trump is a well-written, much-needed look at the undeniable hand of God working in our nation's most recent presidential election. It will restore your hope and Dr. Elvita King, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., praises God and Donald Trump. This must-read book reaches far beyond politics into the redeeming frequencies that America surely needs. God and Donald Trump by Stephen E. Strang is a powerful account with behind-the-scenes exclusives and insightful commentary from Christian leaders, including those who prophesied before the election that God had raised up Donald Trump to lead the nation through a time of crisis. God and Donald Trump. Published by Frontline. Released November 7th in bookstores and online at GodAndDonaldTrumpBook.com.
4: He is the intersection of church and state. Here is Dr. Chaps.
1: Welcome back. I'm Dr. Chaps. I feel like I'm on a cliffhanger. This is like a a, a soap opera story, but it's real history. Uh, And you left us with the Muslim hordes invading Europe, and then there was this deal between the Catholics and Protestants. Pick up where you left off. Right, so
2: Charles V of Spain was the most powerful guy in the world, he controlled all of the new worlds, and he's taken the gold from uh, Incan Peru to fit out his navy to fight the Muslims from taking over the Mediterranean. The Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. Uh, he finally abdicates the throne and uh, joins a monastery, and then uh, the son Philip II takes over. But here's Charles V, faced with this double dilemma, Protestant Reformation on one hand, Muslim invasion on the other hand, tries to make it work, it doesn't, and then he does this treaty called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And this lets every king decide was he's gonna be believed in his kingdom. And so in the next century, you have this domino effect where um, Northern Germany and Sweden become Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist, Holland, Dutch reformed, Scotland, Presbyterian, England was Anglican, uh, Switzerland, Calvinist, and of course, Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland, Ireland remain Catholic. But if you did not believe the way your king did, you were persecuted, it was considered treason, and you were burnt at the stake, or you fled. And so suddenly, all of Europe was thrown into this mass migration of people shifting from one country to another simply for conscience sake. Now we focus in on England. That's where the pilgrims came from. England was Catholic with the King Henry VIII. He was married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the ones who sent Columbus to America. Uh, after uh, Catherine does not have a son uh, for 18 years, she has a daughter Mary, but not a son, Henry VIII decides to divorce her. And the Pope won't recognize the divorce because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world. And six months earlier, the Pope, in, uh, Charles V's men invaded Rome and imprisoned the Pope for six months. And so- They put the Pope in jail? Right, and so Charles V imprisoned the Pope For six months. So the King of Spain was was flexing his muscles and so the Pope didn't want to go against him and so the Pope refused to acknowledge Henry VIII's divorce of the daughter Catherine of Aragon of Spain. And so Henry VIII decides he's going to make himself his own Pope. He He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. He had six wives, not eight. People think, oh, it's Henry VIII because he had eight wives. He only had six wives. Anyway, so uh, his advisors suggested if he really wants to go through with breaking from Rome, he should stop using that Latin Bible and get himself an English Bible, right? Martin Luther translated the Bible into German and that helped these German princes to break away from Rome. So he needs an English one. Just so happens three years earlier, Henry VIII had William Tyndall burnt at the stake. Why? Well, for translating the Bible into English. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So three years later, he wants to do this divorce, the Pope won't recognize it. And so uh, they basically scramble looking for an English Bible and they take William Tyndall's work and sort of redo it and call it the Great Bible. The cover page has a big engraving of Henry on his throne, handing the Bible to the clergy and the noblemen And they're all, these little scripts of ribbon with little sayings, and they're all saying all these great things about King, you know, thanks King, you're wonderful. Anyway, Henry likes it, spreads it around England, dusts his hands, thinking this'll do it, we split from Rome. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it, now that it's in their language, and they began to compare what's in this Bible to this King divorcing and beheading his wives. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, and they're nicknamed the Puritans. And then a bunch of other little groups start splitting off, and the king's like, "Whoa, whoa, hold on here!" Uh, and he institutes an act of uniformity. You have to believe exactly the way he says. And he, well, he thinks he's the new pope, so why not? Right. And so they have the the, the book of common prayer. You want to say a prayer? Here's the book. You got to say it the way it is in the book. You know? Thomas Cranmer wrote that. Right, and and it's actually a really good book, but nevertheless, it was the government dictating it. And so other groups began. They actually had a, a prayer book war. Uh, at at a certain period, you know. Uh, But what happened was, uh, the king had uh, the star chamber. This was uh, a room in one of the castles where if you were accused of having five people meeting without, about to talk religion, without approval from the government, they would raid the meeting and arrest everybody for breaking the law. If you were a dissenting preacher, you had to be five miles outside of town Otherwise, you were arrested and you, for breaking the law. And so the, um, uh, the Star Chamber, there was you could not confront your, your accuser. You couldn't have an attorney. They would just twist your arm, cut off your ear, cut your nose in half, brand you on the face as a heretic for SL, seditious libel. And, uh, and then there was another group that said, it's beyond hope trying to purify the Anglican Church. We're going to separate ourselves. They would meet in secret barns and basements by candlelight. They would get captured, but they finally fled in 1607 to Holland, and we call them the Pilgrims.
1: Now, they're in Holland for seven years. So wait, the Puritans tried to purify the Church of England, failed, became separatists, and moved to Holland? Well, the Puritans stayed there, and they kept
2: working inside the system. Uh, the, The separatists were a whole different group, and they were sort of on the outs of everybody. Uh, They were sort of like illegal house churches in China. I mean, they were just meeting in secret on their own. And they would have little pastors like John Robinson, who was uh, a dissenting pastor. And he said, okay, you got really tough decisions. Well, the whole little congregation would fast and pray and vote. And it was called the congregational form of church government. And so anyway, they flee to Holland. They settle in a city called Leiden, which just a few years earlier had had survived the Spanish Furies. And if I can depart on another little rabbit trail.
1: uh, Wait a minute. Bill Federer going on a rabbit trail? Whoever would have predicted this? Go ahead.
2: (laughs) So the Muslims are still conquering and in 1571, so the Reformation is what? 1517? This is 1571. So you got 230 Muslim ships powered by 15,000 Christian slaves under the deck rowing. Wow. And it's the Battle of Lepanto, the biggest battle ever on the Mediterranean. And then there's 200 of the Holy League ships. And this is Austria, Spain, France, Italy, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Genoa. And they don't get along. And Pope Pius V twists every arm he can find to get them to work together against the Muslims. Now, it's easy to remember Pope Pius V because the Roman numeral five is V, and they did win the victory, so it's the V for victory. Anyway, so Pius V twist their arm, they work together, they'd only do it if King Charles V's son would lead them. I mean, he has to have a stake in this. Man. Philip? Well, well uh, this is an illegitimate son named Don John of Austria, ah. but but you're, you're following though, Philip II is the, the, the son of Charles V. Uh, but the illegitimate son, Don John of Austria, 25 years old, and he's leading this last ditch effort to save Europe from the Muslim invasion. And the wind is against them. And. The admirals tell him, you know, we can fight another day. He goes, no, we're going to fight. He gets them on deck, they pray. While they're praying, the wind changes 180 degrees. The Muslim sails go limp. The Holy League sails fill up with air and they smash into the Muslim fleet and capture or sink 200 of the 230 Muslim ships. And we win. We win. Now, (laughs) they had this brief opportunity that they could have taken that navy and gone to every single island and port and freed them up from the Muslims. They, 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 they defeated the Ottoman Navy. They could have done it. But instead, Spain decides to take its Navy and smash the Reformation in England and in Holland. And so in Holland, it's called the Spanish Furies. The Iron Duke, the Duke of Alba, goes into Antwerp and has his men butchered, men, women, and children leave piles of bodies. I mean, it's really terrible. And then he sends the Armada to England. Um, so uh, I'll talk about the Armada in a minute, but in Holland, William of Orange, and they had seven provinces, and they, he was the Stadtholder, which means the city, Stadt means city, and so uh, seven United Netherlands, but he was the most powerful guy. William of Orange drives the Spaniards out and frees Leiden, and they start a university, and they have an annual day of Thanksgiving. But in Holland settle the Jews, right, they're, they're chased out of Spain. They're chased out of Portugal. Uh, the Jews settle in Holland and settle in Leiden. And so here the pilgrims now are rubbing shoulders with the Jews and they're identifying them with them. You, you fled uh, you know the Pharaoh, we fled the King of England, type of thing.
1: We're, We're gonna take a short break. Uh, with all of that turmoil and upheaval and a, and a naval victory in the Mediterranean, now we find the pilgrims in Holland ready to leave and come to America. Why did they come to America right after this?
4: Dr. Chaps will be right back with more PIJN News. Are you frustrated at the direction your country is headed? Are you ready to fight for a cause and change the world? Do you believe God has called Christians to make a difference? Announcing a new book by Chaplain Gordon Klingenschmidt entitled How to Liberate the World in 30 Days, a step-by-step guide to take back your country. Dr. Alan Keyes wrote the foreword saying, This book needs to be placed in the hands of every millennial and Bible-believing pastor in America. This book teaches 30 powerful political tools in a 30-day devotional that will change your life and give you power it comes with 15 inspiring true stories of political victory you don't even need to get elected to take back your government but if you read this book you just might get elected too order your copy today it's available in the superstore at wnd.com on amazon and you can get the first chapter free right now if you visit the website schoolofliberty.org that's schoolofliberty.org it's time to take back your country
0: stay tuned for the end of our show to learn how to partner with this ministry. Here's Dr. Chaps.
1: Welcome back. I'm Dr. Chaps. Joined with Bill Federer, who is author of this book, The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. Bill, you have us on a cliffhanger now. The Pilgrims are all huddled in Holland. They're cavorting with the Jewish people. They're uh, fleeing King Henry Eighth, Henry or, or, or the Puritan movement of England, they couldn't reform the church. Why did they come to America? So Holland
2: had the largest military merchant empire. Um, Middle Ages, there were no companies. Uh, it was a sin called usury to pay or receive interest. And so when the Reformation happened, Holland started what is arguably the first company. It's called the Dutch East India Company. And uh, they had a monopoly on trade with Japan, and they had Jakarta, India, and Goa, uh, India, and Jakarta, uh, Indonesia, and then Recife, South America, and New Amsterdam, which became New York. And so the Dutch invented companies. So uh, if before, if you wanted to do some big endeavor like sail around the world to trade for spices, you had to hit up some rich guy or a king. Well, once they had companies, anybody, a blacksmith, a cook, a farmer, could invest money in a boat, going over to the Malacca Islands when it came back filled full of spices, you would get paid a profit. If you wanted to sell your interest in the boat, you would go to the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. They invented that. And if the ship sank, you, they invented insurance companies. Now they settled New Amsterdam, and they would trade their stocks along the wall, and when the British took over New Amsterdam in 1664, it turned into the New York Stock Exchange or Wall Street, where individual people could pool their money and to do big endeavors and big companies, and then they would all get paid a profit, right? So that goes back to the 16th century in the Dutch. So the pilgrims settle in Holland, rub shoulders with the Jews. There's actually a Jewish professor at the University of Leiden teaching Hebrew. And there's uh, Elder William Brewster, and he's teaching uh, in the the university. Uh, Finally, they decide to flee to America. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There's three type of colonies. There's company colonies with bylaws, and they're actually a pretty cool deal for the king. He makes no risk, takes no risk. He just gives some rich guys permission to do some endeavor, but he gets a percentage of what comes in. And when the Virginia Company happened, It went on for five years and it went bankrupt, so they threw it in the king's lap, and he had to send over a governor, and so it became a royal crown colony, ruled directly under the king. The third type is a proprietary colony, where the king gives the whole thing as property to a friend, like William Penn gets all of Pennsylvania, Lord Baltimore gets all of Maryland. Well, those were the three types. The pilgrims were going to land in Jamestown, they get blown off course, and they're in Massachusetts. It's winter, it's stormy, they try going south, but Cape Cod off the coast is called the Graveyard of Ships, 3,000 shipwrecks because they have these sandy shoals that keep shifting and so the pilgrims almost sink, the captain goes back to Plymouth and says get off the boat, no more sailing, Uh, it's too dangerous and the pilgrims say "Uh, we have a problem, who's going to be in charge? There is no king-appointed person on our boat. The whole world is ruled by kings, right? That the creator gives the power to the king and he dispenses it to the people through all of his administrators. Well, there was
1: no king-appointed person on the Mayflower. Who's gonna be in charge? They had to come up with a new form of government. We have just about two minutes left. Uh, let's Bring us home and, and tell people where they can find the treacherous world of the 16th century.
2: Well, AmericanMinute.com is my website, AmericanMinute.com. And so the pilgrims do a little polarity change. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact or Covenant. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic to pass all the laws we think necessary unto which we promise due submission. Simple revolutionary. This is them, it's a polarity change. Instead of a top down, it's a bottom up. Where did they get this idea? From their pastor, John Robinson, who was one of the founders of the Congregational Church, where everybody votes in the church. They simply took their church government and made it their government government. This became the model for the New England colonies and eventually the US Constitution, right? We the people and the declaration governed by the consent of the governed. Again, bottom up versus top down. Uh, the Pilgrims uh, experimented with communism. Uh, the next year, they finally got somebody to go over to the king and approve a Massachusetts company. And so now they have bylaws, but these bylaws say everything's owned in common for seven years. Anything gained by planting or fishing or hunting goes into ye common stock. Uh, Every planter and every adventurer, which was the investor, is one shareholder, at the end of seven years divided equally. Sounds great on paper, but half the pilgrims died the first year and they're starving. And I mean, the the mom's got a a sick kid, her husband died, and she doesn't want to go out in the field and plant. Well, William Bradford says, we're going to starve unless we get something planted. we're gonna scrap this communistic plan, he actually calls it a communistic plan, and everybody gets their own plot of land. Your family gets a plot, whatever grows on it's yours, and we'll figure out how to pay back the adventurers later. They did, it took 40 years to pay them back, but they survived, and so the mom would take the little kid Put the kid on her hip and she would go out there and she would plant and so it's interesting they experimented with communism here we have communism being pushed in our schools today and it did not work did it it did not work (laughs) uh, because there's a basic human motivation of uh self-interest and that uh didn't uh, be applied in the communism and the bible says if anyone should not
1: eat that uh, or should not work then he should not eat
2: right Another lesson, in 1625 the Pilgrims, in addition to planting and surviving, they did save up 800 pounds of beaver skins and salted fish. They put it all on a a boat, they send it to England, thinking, okay, we're going to start paying off our debt, we want some trade for some supplies. A Muslim ship, a Turkish man of war, captures it in the English Channel, takes the crew to Morocco, sells them into slavery. That year, in 1625, the Muslims capture over a thousand from England. Then they go to Ireland and capture an entire village, the stolen village of Baltimore, Ireland, round them up, take them to Morocco. Then they go to Iceland, they capture 400 from Reykjavik, Iceland. And so the Muslim pirates were uh, attacking
1: the pilgrims and the same issues we're facing today with jihadists. Hold that thought uh and you can tell he might have more to say on tomorrow's show but but right now i would just want to say the treacherous world of the 16th century and how the pilgrims escaped it this is a history book and it's worthy of your homeschooling effort heck this ought to be in every public school in america bill federer thank you for this time americanminute.com
2: thank you dr chaps americanminute.com
1: americanminute.com subscribe to his emails we'll have him again on tomorrow's show God bless you in Jesus' name. Our website is PrayInJesusName.org. If you need prayer, call us at 866-Obey-God. We'll see you next time. Today, I wanna invite you to sign an important petition to Congress to protect military chaplains, especially their right to pray publicly in Jesus' name. If you remember my story, you know that I was vindicated by Congress in 2006 after I took a principled stand for the right to pray in Jesus' name. But Congress never did pass a positive law to let chaplains pray according to their conscience. Would you sign that petition with me? Let's take action today.